Yes, so today we jump into a new sermon series that we're going to be following up until the end of June. We're going to end with, uh, I think it's June 24th is the final Sunday of the month there. And we're going to do another uh, family service. There's be lots more information coming on that in the weeks ahead, but we'll wrap up the series and wrap up the, our time, head into the summer with a bit of a family series, or a family uh, service on that day. And as has been mentioned, this is going to be a walk through the book of Ephesians. We're going to go kind of verse by verse, passage by passage through from beginning to end. There's some parts we're going to go through a little quicker than others to make sure we can fit into those few weeks. We're going to walk from Ephesians 1 through Ephesians 6 right to the end. And if you haven't read the book before, if you're not overly familiar with it, it's been a little while since you've read it. Uh, Ephesians is a fantastic book, a, a very concise theology. It, it's rich in theology. Uh, and it was written by the Apostle Paul when, uh, when he was actually in prison around 60 AD, so about 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And it's a letter he wrote to a church that he had planted a, a number of years earlier. Uh, a church in the city of Ephesus, which we get the Ephesians from, the city of Ephesus, the church in Ephesus. And that was a, a city that he had been in for about three years. He used it for a home base for his ministry for about three years. And it's not really surprising that he spent a lot of time in this city because it was really a, kind of a metropolis. It was one of the most important cities within the region that it exists, with, which is referred to as Asia Minor or, or modern-day Turkey. And from this home base in this large metropolitan area that he, that he lived in the day, it was, it was a bustling city in part because it was at the intersection of major trade routes, and, and it was a port city. So whether it was goods or services or people traveling by land or by sea, if you went through that area, there's a really good likelihood that you would go through Ephesus. And because of that, it was the type of city where whatever you want, you can get it. Everything is available. Everything comes into that city, everything goes through that city. And so there was a, an increase in, in things like, like commercialism, materialism were prominent within the day. But because people from so many different regions would come into that land, it was an extremely diverse city as well. People from different cultures and places came and brought, brought their customs and brought their religions with them. And as they would not just pass through but actually stay in the city for a while, a, a lot of temples would start to pop up to the point where there was in excess of 50 places, different places of worship within the city of Ephesus itself. Now, one of the most major places of worship was a temple called the, the Temple of Artem Artemis which is actually one of the seven wonders of the world. It was destroyed a few decades um, following when this letter was written, but um, it's one of the seven wonders of the world. It's one of the most massive temples that is in existence. And so as you can imagine, this city that is focused on commercialism, consumerism, uh, diversity, and pluralism of religion and varieties in those areas, it was a city that was not necessarily warm and welcoming to the Christian message. And, and there are some similarities we could find perhaps from the culture in the city of that day to the Western culture in which we live in here today. Now, over the three years that Paul lived in Ephesus, he, he evangelized many, many people in the city. He developed disciples. He trained up disciples, and he planted a church there. And if you read in Acts chapter 20, there's this, this last meeting between Paul and the, and the elders of Ephesus, the church in Ephesus there, where they have this heartfelt departure because they know they're never going to see each other again. We read that in, in Acts chapter 20. But the church there, it was flourishing. It, it grew up under Paul's leadership, and even after he left, under the elders he had trained and put in place, the church flourished. 
And so this letter that he's writing to them many years after while he's in prison is not a letter where he's trying to correct some sort of heresy or some sort of bad theology that exists. He's, he's not trying to address a particular error that may have crept up in the church. You find that in some of the letters that Paul wrote, but, but not in this one. See, in this letter, what he's doing is he's actually trying to encourage and he's trying to remind these people that exist in this church in Ephesus. He's trying to remind them of God's purposes and of God's goal for the church for the church to which they constitute. And so for the first half of the book, uh, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, we see that, that he walks through this theological aspect of who they are in Christ and who they are in the church, that, that the means of salvation, that the salvation that they themselves have and the fact that they are brought together, unified under Christ in the church is an incredible blessing that comes from God. That their salvation and their togetherness in the church is a blessing from God. It, it, it emerges from his wisdom. It's from his forethought. It happens by his action throughout history. And then the second half of the book, chapters 4 through 6, he, he turns to more of this practical. So if you are believers who exist within the unity of the church, what does that look like to live that out in this world that is hostile at times to the Christian message? And so he gets very practical in the last half of the book. And so because of that, we could refer to the book of Ephesians. We could look at the book of Ephesians as sort of a, a playbook, if you will. A playbook for the church in a world that is unfriendly to the message and to the will of God. Now, when I, when I say that word playbook, you know, Phil is correct. My mind goes back to football days. Back to days when, uh, when the football season would start and you would go, I would go to the coach's house and he would hand you the playbook. This is the playbook for the year. This is the coach's plan to victory throughout the year. And as you would flip through it, you would read it and you would study it. You would get to know that playbook. It would give you insights into things like the coach's preparation work, the things the coach was doing before the season even started to get ready to hand you that book. It gave you insights to the big picture strategy that, that underlies what's in each of the pages. And it gave you a sense that we are all on the same team because it's not a solo sport. It's a sport that requires people of different positions and giftings and abilities to come together in unity. And so while each person is unique, while each person has a role to play, when we look at that playbook, every person on the team gets the same playbook. And it brings us together unified under one coach, under one playbook to pursue one victorious goal that's laid out within it. Now, if you're not sports-minded and that playbook doesn't quite resonate with you, maybe you could think of it as like a survival guide. Or maybe you could look at it as, as I don't know, maybe a knitting crocheting guide or, or maybe a cookbook kind of idea or a syllabus for a college class that you would take. In each of these examples, we see that there is a plan and a purpose that is expressed in each of them. That if you want to experience victory in those areas, if you want the cake to look like it does on the picture on the box, you got to get to know some basics of baking and then follow the baker's instructions if you want to look like the picture on the front of the box. And so it's my prayer that for us as the church here at West Meadows, under the headship of Jesus Christ, that as we walk through this book of Ephesians over the next few weeks, that first and foremost, we will be absolutely overwhelmed Overwhelmed by the reality of God's great love for you. Of his incredible, unfathomable love for you. That is expressed in things such as his intentional nature of going through the actions to bring about salvation to each of us individually. But then also to intentionally bring us together as family. Or, or as a team, if you will. 
But then also to come to see that the results of this is not just between us and God. Thanks, God, for saving me. I'll take it from here. But to see that the other aspect of that is, is for us to be so impassioned with the reality that we are in Christ's family. We are part of Christ's church. To be so impassioned by that, that it sets us forth to go and see the potential that exists within each of us individually, but also collectively to make a difference in this world as we go out to live together according to his will and according to his purposes according to his playbook that he has given us. And so each week as you come, I hope you'll bring with you your own copy of your playbook. If you don't have one, you can find a Bible in the pews in front of you. And the book of Ephesians, I invite you, if you have it with you, to, to turn there either in your own Bibles or on your phones or to grab the book in the pew in front of you. If you grab the pew Bible, it's on page 946. And to follow along as we read through this book of Ephesians starting today with verses 1 through 14. And as you grab those, and as you open your Bibles, just draw your attention to that. In the first few verses of this book, Paul opens it like he would open any letter. And he provides important insights into what the rest of the letter, if you remember English, English 11, English 12 in high school, your introduction should contain and introduce the reader to what you're going to be talking about in the verses ahead. He does a good job of that in here. He gives us some insight into what the main themes, the overall purpose of the whole letter is going to be. Now, most letters that we receive today come in electronic format. Uh, and if you have done an email before, which I'm, I imagine most of us, and all of us have done thousands of these in our time, you'll know that there's a few things you have to fill in or else when you hit that send button, the program will say, no, you can't send it yet. Because you've got to say who it's from, who it's to, and a subject line. And that's not what Paul does at the start of this, of this letter. He fills in those those blanks for us in verses 1 and 2, where he says this. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a customary way that Paul begins his letters. He begins with this, this identification of himself and identification who he's writing to. In this case, he's saying, Paul, the apostle, Apostle meaning one who was sent by Jesus Christ to go preach the good news and to make disciples of all the nations. Paul the Apostle at the will of God. Who's he writing to? He's writing to the holy people in Ephesus. Or he's writing to the holy people at the church in Ephesus. Those whom God has set apart. Those whom God has claimed for himself and brought together in the church. And what is the subject line? Grace and peace. Grace and peace, which will come up time and time again throughout this letter, throughout the weeks ahead of us, as, as Paul talks about the means, the reality, and the outpourings of our salvation and unity together as a church. And then in the dozen or so verses that follow this, from verses 3 through 14, Paul is going to define what God has accomplished for us. Now in the original Greek, these next verses from 3 to 14, these, these next verses, all dozen or so verses of those, is one long, elaborate sentence that would be covered in red pen if you did that for an English assignment. Because there's no punctuation. There's bad grammar when it's one long sentence. But it's this beautiful, elegant expression of why God is worthy to be praised. In one long sentence, it's one long thought and statement as to why God is worthy to be praised. Now doxology is what's referred to. And doxology is basically just that, a formal statement of praise as to who God is and what he has done for us. And that's what we're going to cover today and through much of this season ahead of us as we walk through the book of Ephesians. So follow along as I read verses 3 through 14. 
and then we'll circle back the rest of our time together and hit some of the main points that flow from this passage. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the time reaches their fulfillment. To each uni- to bring unity to all things under heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise and to his glory. That's a mouthful. As you read through that, I I went through that quickly, and as you went through it, you're probably thinking there is a ton in here. And it's true. In those those 12 verses, Paul's not trying to lay out a systematic theology for us. Paul is trying to, in in such a beautifully um, elaborate sentence, just try to explain without a whole lot of underlying defense to explain this is who God is and why he is worthy of our worship. And if you read through it again later with, with a little pen to make notes, I invite you to go through it and watch for this. Watch for the triune, the Father, Son, and Spirit, the triune God in action for you, but ultimately to his glory. It's what you can read through it again with eyes to see. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, each individually identified in that passage, in action to bring about salvation for you, benefits for all of us, but ultimately for his glory. Now, Paul opens with this great declaration that our God and Heavenly Father is worthy of praise for the action that he has done on our behalf. And so as, we be, as he begins to unpack what all that entails, he makes a statement that really is very difficult for a lot of us to, to comprehend. He makes a statement very early on that, that God chose us before the creation of the world. Now, this leads to some questions for a lot of us, that this idea that God chose us because it draws us towards, and it's part of a debate that has been going on for decades, that going on for centuries, as to why would God choose some, but, but God wouldn't choose others, or, or questions like, well, how does free will fit into that then if God chose us, and as later Paul is going to say, he, he predestined us. And unfortunately, we're not going to be able to solve that one today for, for the church. Uh, maybe in the future we can, we can address that one. But you see, Paul's not trying to present that systematic theology. That question as to how does, how does free will and all that fit into this is, is not the question Paul's trying to address here. Paul is trying to simply state this is God's action. This is what God did. And this is the outcome of his work. And this is why he is worthy of our worship. But let's pause for a second and at least consider the impact and the implications of such an incredible statement. The fact that, that God would choose us. And what he's saying here, that he chose us before the creation of the world. This means before Genesis 1-1, before anything existed, God knew you. God loved you. 
for as long as God has been in existence, which, which is for, for all of eternity, you have been known by him. You have been cherished by him. And he has had a plan to save you, to bring you into relationship with him. You see, you are never a whimsical idea that just sort of dawned upon or appeared to God. It was never a whimsical idea. It was, it was never uh, sort of an afterthought of an event that took place. This was the plan from the beginning. Now, it may also lead some people to ponder the question, well, why would he choose me? Like, I know me. Why would he choose me to be brought into relationship with him? What is it about me that makes me worthy to be part of that? You know, I know this guy over here, he, he's really charismatic. I can see people being wanting to be drawn towards him. It would make sense to bring him into the church because people want to be around him. So I can see God choosing him, but me. Or, or this guy, he, he's a great leader. You know, he could be in charge of small groups. He could be in charge of coffee ministry. He could be in charge of maintenance at the church. But I'm not a great leader. Why would God choose me? You see, but none of these things matter. Because none of these virtues or characteristics or abilities that exist within us matter because God's choosing of us really had nothing to do with us or nothing about how virtuous we or how righteous we are. Because it has everything to do with him. Remember, Paul's primary purpose in this doxology is to demonstrate that God is the one who is in action. God is the one who is in charge of the choosing and in action. We see this in the Old Testament. If you think back to the Old Testament, we just walked through the book of Joshua, parts of Joshua a while ago. And God had a chosen people. This wasn't the first time he had chosen. He had a chosen people back in the Old Testament. And back then, he took these steps again to choose a people for himself, that nation of Israel. And in Moses' final appeal to them in the, in the book of Deuteronomy, he's talking to them about what it is that caused God to choose them. And he says to them, he didn't choose you guys because you're the largest. He didn't choose you because you're the most numerous. In fact, you were the smallest of all the tribes. God didn't choose you because you were the least sinful or because you were the most righteous. Time and time again, God talks about how, how they were a sinful people. They were a wayward people. They were a stubborn, stiff-necked group of people. That, that wasn't why he chose the nation of Israel. He chose the nation of Israel because he loved them. And because in Deuteronomy 7-8, it says he swore that he, he loved them and he swore that he would redeem them. It was his choice and his action and his love that were the motivating factors. Well, likewise, as Paul continues in the book of Ephesians, the blessings that come to us from the realm of heaven that we receive are not because of our virtues. They're because he predestined us for adoption through, the son of Jesus, through his son Jesus Christ according to his purpose and according to his will is the reason that he chose us. Now, I'm not sure if anybody here has ever seen that TV show, uh, The Voice. Never watched The Voice. I, I've seen like one episode, but I understand the concept of The Voice. It's, it's one, of these, one of these TV shows where they are looking to choose to, to find one of those great singers that can go off and, and be the next, next great hit in, uh, in the music world. Well, if you haven't seen it before, they've got, I think it's four judges who sit in these great big elaborate chairs. And they have their backs turned to the stage. And an amateur singer will walk out to the stage... And they will just start singing. And if the judge likes what they hear, not what they can see or anything, just what they can hear in that voice, they hit a button on their chair, their chair spins around, and it moves forward. And at the bottom of the chair, it lights up and it says, I want you. Because they then want to coach that person through the rest of the competition. You see, when God thought of you, he hit his button. 
And he turned his chair around and it lit up and said, I want you. But here's the thing. He did that before you ever sang a note. He did that before you ever stood on the stage. He did that before you even existed. Before you did anything, before there was anything virtuous or unvirtuous within you. He hit his button and said, I want you. I want you as a son or a daughter in, in my family. I want you to be in relationship with me and have everything that you need to live a holy and blameless life in this world. I want and I choose you. You see, when Paul talks here about our adoption into God's family, it's about this idea that God chose us, wants us, desired us, sought us, and brought us into his family. It's like when a family goes to, like, to an orphanage, for example, to, to pick up that, that child that they've been longing for and waiting for their arrival. And in that moment of that family and that, that orphan coming together, that child in that instant becomes a member of that family. They receive the love of that family. They get the name of the family. They receive all privileges and rights and responsibilities that go along with being a member of that family. And the same holds true when we have been adopted into the family of God. But our adoption was made a reality through Jesus Christ. Our adoption was made a reality through Jesus Christ who redeemed us who redeemed us from being spiritual orphans to a point of becoming identified with God in God's family. Now, what do we mean when we say that Jesus redeemed us? Now, the word redemption in our world often refers most often to, to things like, like I don't know, coupons that you might find at a grocery store in a newspaper where you get to redeem this coupon for 25 cents off a can of soup, where you exchange a coupon for, for cash, essentially. Rather than giving, giving your quarter or giving your, your nickel for something, you can redeem a coupon in place of it. Now, these can be very valuable. Have you ever seen that another TV? It makes it sound like I watch TV all the time. But have you ever seen that other TV show, Extreme Couponing? I don't know, you can't do this in Canada. I guess in the States you can mass all these coupons together. But if you research coupons and you pile them up, you can go to the grocery store and get like $300 worth of groceries for like 5 bucks. If you coupon, good enough. Right? I don't know, it's on TLC. They didn't watch this sometimes. So, but, but here's the thing. Why do, I, why do I even mention that? Here's the thing. You see, there's similarities between the way that Paul is using the word redeem here and the marketplace. See, in the Old Testament marketplace, there was this idea that you could purchase or you could buy back an item. You could purchase, you could buy back even a person who otherwise would be destroyed or lost or taken as a prisoner into somebody else's family. And so with, with money or with another possession through a barter system, you'll be able to exchange or to redeem that item or that person and to make it your own at that point. We, a great example of this is seen in the book of Ruth. If you're familiar with the book of Ruth, uh, is where Boaz, at the end of it, in Ruth chapter 4, Boaz goes to the town gate where all the business is conducted, where the business of the city is done, and, and he bought or he redeemed the land that belonged to Naomi, to Naomi's deceased husband. He bought or he redeemed that land. And when he redeemed it, he not only gained access to the land, but he also gained access to all the people who at that point on the land had essentially become slaves. They were, again, redeemed. And in addition to that, he gained the right. He redeemed the land, the slaves, and the right, therefore, to marry Ruth. Because he redeemed it, it came into the family. It came into his family. He was the redeemer of it. Well, in Ephesians, Paul tells us that in Jesus, we have redemption. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, the blood of Jesus is just a shorthand way of pointing towards his sacrificial death. 
and the fact that we have been released from sin. Now, when we think of sin, though, quite often when we hear the word sin, the thing we focus upon is the bad action, the, the bad decisions we did that we would go, well, that was sinful. That thing I did was sinful. That thought I had was sinful. And, and that's not incorrect, but that's not quite what Paul's trying to get at here. You see, if we think of sin simply as, as the bad things I think and do, we can be a fault of setting up a transactional basis again, where I do something bad, Jesus did something good, we exchange them, and we're all good again. Now, that isn't totally incorrect, but if that is the limitation of our view of what sin is, simply a one-for-one exchange, that's a little different than what Paul's talking about here. Because what Paul's talking about here is not so much an action that is sinful as much as the power that sin has over us. The bondage that we find ourselves in because of sin, which is an outpouring of the individual thoughts and actions that we do that are sinful. But he's referring more not so much to an action as much as to a power that we are in bondage to without God's grace. You see, without the redemption, without Jesus' redemption, we are in bondage. We are slaves to sin. Therefore, while our sins and actions are forgiven, Paul here is saying that we are not just forgiven of those things, but we are also freed from their control over us. They no longer have any authority over us. They no longer have any right in our lives. He talks about this in Romans 6, where he says, Thanks to God that we who used to be slaves to sin, we have now been set free and have become slaves to righteousness instead. See, we've been freed from our slavery to, to sin and we've been freed from any right or control or authority that had over us in the past life because we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And now we live in victory with him. Now because we're identified with him and his victory, we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to righteousness because we're victorious with him. Now Paul refers to this in verse 9 as a mystery. He talks about how this is a mystery, and I think we'd all agree with him at some point that, that we can't fully comprehend the magnitude and really the full aspect of the transaction that takes place here when we go from being in bondage to sin to being slaves to righteousness as opposed to slaves to sin. So there's a mysterious aspect that goes along with that. But the word mystery here actually is referring to something a little bit different. It's referring to the fact that, remember, this was God's plan from the beginning. But it was a mystery up until the time of Christ because it could not be revealed until the time of Jesus Christ. It was a mystery up until the time when Jesus' victory had reached fulfillment. And therefore, we then could have this revealed to us, and it could become our victory as well. It was a mystery until the time when Jesus would become the exalted one, exalted to the highest place, given a name that is above every name. And at that point, it could be revealed that he is not just the Redeemer, but he is also the King of kings and Lord of lords that has rights and authority over all creation, on heaven and under the earth and on the earth, as it says in Philippians 2, that he has brought all things under the authority of Jesus Christ. That's what we call the good news. That's what we call the good news of Jesus Christ. That Jesus has redeemed all things, has power and authority over all things. And so as Paul moves to, towards concluding his doxology. There's a bit of a shift that happens. There's a bit of a turn that happens as he goes from focusing upon God's plan for redemption to the evidence and the sign that we are part of it, that we are part of that redemption. 
the guarantee of all of us have for those who are in Christ. You see, as a result of us hearing this good news, and as a result of us believing the good news of Jesus Christ, we have been freed from the power of sin and brought into the family of God. And then Paul says in verse 13 that you were marked with a seal. You are marked with the promised Holy Spirit. Remember back in John chapter 16 on the evening before Jesus was crucified, he told his disciples he was going to leave them. He had said it a few times before, but, but this is, this is the, kind of the third time in a short period of time that he had said it. And, and I imagine he probably said it with a little more urgency because it was like literally hours away until he would be taken from them. And he told them, you know what, guys, it's actually better if I go. Because if he went away, then he could send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit would be with them. But they didn't understand that. And we can understand why they didn't quite comprehend that. Because Jesus is there and they know him, they love him. It's working out pretty well. So how could you leaving be better? But as they would come to experience that when Jesus did die, raise, be exalted, and send the Holy Spirit to be with them, they did then come to experience what it's like to have the Holy Spirit as counselor, as comforter. And as the one who convicts us towards righteousness and away from sin. And here this gift of the Holy Spirit is is presented as a seal. A seal that guarantees our future life with God. How do we use seals? I don't mean like seals like like that kind of seal. Like like seals that we have on, on like letters. Seals that we put on cargo ships before they set across the oceans on their long journeys. Like I said, on letters, we seal envelopes that are to be mailed to make sure we protect what's inside so that it arrives at its destination intact. We put seals on a can. A can is sealed to preserve what goes inside, to extend the freshness of the contents to be used for, for a later date. And when you see a broken tin where the seal's broken, do you buy it? Mm. Nope, you got to spin those cans, make sure there's no dents or cracks or, or nicks, right, before you buy your cans. Because if the seal's broken, what happens to the contents? And we've all seen cans and bottles and containers that have a label on them that say, do not use if seal broken on it. See, we seal things for intentional purposes. And for us, the Holy Spirit is a seal upon us that conveys the idea that we belong to God. That we belong to him. That he has sealed us, he has kept us, he has preserved us, and he is protecting us. Because we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. But in addition to that, He also says that the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our future inheritance in verse 14. Now, when you purchase something of great value, maybe when you go to buy a car, you go to buy a house, before you get too far into the process of seriously discussing the purchase of that item, it's common for them to say you got to put down a deposit. You need to put down a deposit upon the house. you got to put a deposit upon the car. And if you willingly put down the deposit, the reason the seller, the person wants that is because it's you putting kind of words into action. It's you practically declaring your intention to fulfill the rest of the requirements. That you're actually serious about following through on all of this. That you are serious about taking ownership of this item in the future. Now the deposit that has been placed into us in the Holy Spirit is, is also considered a first installment, if you will. A promise of more to come. And the Holy Spirit as God's deposit, as God's first installment into us, is a form of promise. It's a promise that God is guaranteeing that our full inheritance is ready and protected and reserved for us in the future. But in the here and now, 
we still experience the benefits of it because we've been sealed and we've been given that initial installment, that first deposit. Because we have been chosen, we've been redeemed, and we have been sealed by God out of the abundance of his love, out of his grace, and out of his mercy upon us. And there's a lot that gets contained in these few verses in the doxology. But if you think about all that we've covered so far in these last few moments, it's amazing. It is absolutely amazing that God Almighty would accomplish all of this for us. And so before we wrap up here this morning, I just want us to consider what it all means for us as we walk out these doors. What does that mean? It's wonderful to understand and to, to experience these truths in our lives that God has chosen us and redeemed us and sealed us. But, but as we walk out these doors, what difference is that going to make in a world that is resistant to the truth of Jesus Christ? What difference does it make in our lives? How can we go forth with these things in mind, practically speaking? Or if you're a person who's here and are, or have not yet made that decision, you're still kind of curious and checking out the whole Jesus thing. What difference would this make in your life? What difference could it make in your life if this was a reality that you experience on a daily basis? Well, there's three things. And the first thing I want to share with you is that because of this, we can live with assurance. We can live with assurance because our salvation begins with God and is accomplished by God. See, throughout the whole doxology, God is the one who has been the central actor. God is the one who has been moving. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Now from our contemporary view, of our contemporary perspective, where society tends to be more me-focused, focused upon the ego, upon the individual, the egocentrism of, of the world around us, we tend to believe that we are the primary actors. And therefore that has an impact on how we view salvation at times. For example, when we talk about somebody who has a conversion experience, we'll say something like, they invited Jesus into their lives. Now, I don't have a personal problem with that sentence, with that statement, because we understand what it's, what it's talking about. But it kind of gives the sense that we're at the center, that, that we're the initiators, that we're the one who established this relationship with God, and we're the ones responsible for the outcomes. If we look at the book of Ephesians, instead of saying they invited Jesus into their life, it might be more accurate to say they were brought into Jesus' life. That they were brought into Christ because God is the central character. God is the central actor, the initiator. He is the one who took the steps, made it possible, made a reality, and has taken us forward for the outcomes. So we can live with assurance. We can live with assurance that God who started this work in us will see it through to completion. And I heard one, one person say this week, if we consider the level of investment between us and between God when it comes to our salvation, it's true that God seems a little more committed to our salvation than we even are at times. He planned it, initiated it, made a reality, and we have been brought into Christ. And so when we have these moments of, of temptation, these moments of doubt, these moments of struggle, keep in mind, that we need to fight through those. We need to press into the wind and work our way through those. But at the end of the day, none of that has ever foiled God's plans. That he has always been committed to you and to your salvation. And that he will see you get through that. He will see you through that season to a point of completion for the plans that he has in your life. So we can live with assurance. But the second thing is that we can live with hope. Even in the face of many, many kinds of trials, that God is in control. 
And God is at work in all of it according to his will. In verse 11 and 2 of this, of this doxology, it says, God is working in all things to make us into sons and daughters who will bring praise to his glory. Now, there will be seasons in our lives when this seems doubtful. There'll be seasons in our lives we go through where it's hard to, hard to understand that this is actually the reality that we can live with hope. Because things are just chaotic. Seasons in our lives can seem completely out of control. We may enter into a time of health conditions or illnesses that are just beyond our ability. We didn't do anything wrong. We didn't eat wrong. We didn't have any actions that, that made us predisposed to any conditions. And yet here we are, having to go through a medical situation, uh, different procedures and different physical si- situations that we're just forced to go through. It seems like things are out of control. There are people who may be going to work tomorrow thinking, is there even any work for today? Or is today the day they lay me off? Families who are going through the later stages of of life with their parents and trying to help them through a difficult time. Parents who have kids who are entering into young adulthood and making decisions and choices that, 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 that just frustrate and break their hearts. There are people in our lives who just for whatever reason seem to be out to get us. We don't know why, I understand why at times. But remember, in all of these things, all of these things and people and situations are under the control of Jesus Christ. Because he has authority over all of creation on heaven and on earth. And even the things that people may intend for harm, God can redeem and use for good. I remember when I was eight years old, and we lived in this in this building that had a, a large tree lot behind it. And as an eight-year-old boy, I'd go through the trees in the field sometimes and and I remember that, especially in the really denser treed areas, there are a lot of anthills. And so the, these massive anthills that had developed, just thousands of ants just scurrying in all directions. And from my perspective, it seemed completely out of control. It seemed like there was no sense, no intentional, no logic behind it. Just utter chaos upon that mound of sticks and dirt as these thousands of ants just scurry around. But as we know from studying ants, that, that it's not utter chaos. What appears to be chaos actually is, is a very highly structured society that exists within those anthills. Now, being a young boy, I'd watch this and be fascinated by these ants just screwing around. And, but, you know, what do young boys do? Well, they tend to kick anthills. Or they'll grab a big boulder and, like a meteorite, drop a big, bigger, I did, <laughs> on the anthills. And then they go into like an utter frenzy, right? Like they were moving around before, but now they're really moving as they scurry around in a complete frenzy because this big rock just dropped upon their big anthill. It's even more chaotic. But see, they just kicked it into high gear at those times. That higher order still existed. Each of them still knew what their job within the ant colony was. They still knew what their design and order and their part to play was. The design and the plan remained in place. It just got kicked into overdrive until they overcame the fact the new rock had just been introduced into their home that they had. So when someone kicks your anthill, when someone drops a big boulder in the middle of your happiness, from your perspective, it might seem like things are in utter chaos, like things are just completely out of control. This is beyond what I can handle. But don't forget, we live with hope because all things are under Jesus Christ. And God's higher order is never foiled. At times, it just gets kicked into high gear in each of our lives. And the final thing we can look at this passage, and we can see that 
Clearly there are benefits for us from the fact that we have been chosen, we have been redeemed, and we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, which gives us assurance and hope. And in keeping with Paul's primary purpose in putting forth this doxology, because that is the reality in which we live, we know we can also live lives of worship. We can also live lives of worship under him. You see, from the opening to the closing verse of this doxology and a few verses in between, it says, praise be to God. All praise goes to God for his glory. And so as we close our service today, that's exactly what I want us to do. To sing a closing song of praise. We're, we're from our hearts and from our lives. We just lift our voices in praise to him. See, God's eternal desire was for us. God, God's desire and unfathomable goodness has been for us. And in a lot of ways, we can't fully understand or, or fathom the reality that the God of creation would know us, yet don't love us, desire to be with us. But the fact of the matter is that we worship a God who, as, as Tim Keller refers to him, is a prodigal God. Tim Keller wrote a wonderful book called The Prodigal God Based Upon the Prodigal Son, explaining how it, the parable is actually more about God and his overwhelming love, this prodigal love that God has, this, this prodigal love which also can be understood as a reckless love. And what he means by reckless is, is that from our perspective, why would he love so deeply on such as us, on people who are so unworthy as us, who, who didn't do anything to earn it, didn't do anything to deserve it. Why would he love people who he knows there's a high likelihood that they're just going to throw it back at him and never receive it? And he loves so recklessly, if you will, that he chases after us, that he chose us, that he could redeem us and to seal us and to bring us into his family. And is that love, abounding love, is actually the very thing, if you think back on your own story, your own testimony, his love for you as he pursued you is the very thing that drew you to God. like all of us who are so undeserving and so unearning, yet to all of us who believe in the name of Jesus Christ, he gave us the right, the right to be called children of God. If you've not made that personal declaration for yourself, follow in the service, come find me. I'll be at the front here, get in the foyer for a little bit after that. I'd love to talk with you and pray with you on how that can become a reality in your life. How that prodigal love of God has been pursuing you and searching you. You can claim that this very day. So I'm going to close with a quick word of prayer, and then we're going to stand and we're going to sing the praise of worship to our God who loves us. Heavenly Father, your work throughout history is amazing. The fact that before history even existed, before all, all that was, was, you existed and knew us and loved us. God, that is a mystery in so many ways, and yet we know that, that when we come to experience your love, when we come to experience the redemption of Jesus Christ and the inner working and the sealing of the Holy Spirit, that, that, that the mystery is lifted in a way. We come to experience and on a firsthand account what it means to be loved by God, to have the riches of heavenly realms poured out upon us. It doesn't mean life's going to be perfect, Lord. It just means that you'll go through it with us. So I pray, Father, that as as your people here stand and close this service with, with expressions of declaring that you do love us to a point beyond our understanding and comprehension, that we do so with thanksgiving. 
We do so wanting to go forth with hope, with assurance, with lives that worship you.